We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Motel Hell on October 24, 1980. It was written by Robert and Stephen Charles Jaffe, with uncredited writing from Tim Tucrello and Frank Cotolo, directed by Kevin Connor, and released by United Artists. The original screenplay by the Jaffe brothers was much darker, with more violence, bestiality, and no comedic elements, with Toby Hooper attached to direct. Hmm. When Universal passed because it was too disturbing, Hooper walked away, and Kevin Connor was attached on the condition that the screenplay be converted into a black comedy and all the unnecessary crudeness be removed. Apparently the first draft opened with Ida in bed with a dildo. Well, I'm glad they at least left the necessary crudeness. Right. <laughs> the exteriors of the motel are Sable Ranch in Santa Clarita. Harry Dean Stanton was approached for the Farmer Vincent role, but declined. I could totally see him in that role. I think he'd have been great. The tagline for the film was, You Might Just Die Laughing, which is the second film from 1980 <laughs> to basically feature the title of another 1980 film in its tagline. After Don't Answer the Phone, He'll Know You're Alone. <laughs> We open the film at night outside Motel Hello, whose neon light is in the process of burning out. The O is flickering, so the sign reads Motel Hell half the time. The titles come up in this orange neon light font. It looks very cool. Yeah, I like that this a lot. I, I think it also, uh, again, felt more modern than a lot of the films that we've been watching. Yeah. I recognize this building immediately as Kai Wolf's home from MacGyver episode Every Time She Smiles. <laughs> Do you remember that one? Um, I remember every time she smiles, but I don't remember actually seeing his home. Uh, they drive to it over the weekend. And, okay. And this is the the building where she she says, what do they call those things that sometimes have diesel that are out in the fields? And he says, ah, you mean a tractor? <laughs> Farmer Vincent sits in a rocking chair on the porch with a pipe. He stands from his chair and he moves inside to put on a jacket and load a shotgun. In another room of the office, we see Vincent's sister, Ida, sleeping in front of a televangelist's broadcast. Vincent switches the no half of their no vacancy sign on and hops in his pickup truck in the orange glow of the lights. He drives past a billboard for Farmer Vincent's Smoked Meats. This is it, with a drawing of himself. Wandering the woods with his gun, he hears an approaching motorcycle with two passengers. The driver loses control around a turn and hits a tree very slowly. I thought... This, this would be very easily survivable. Right, but he shot him, right? Right, but you don't know that in this scene. Okay. That's a spoiler, we call that. <laughs> Vincent backs his truck up to the accident and loads the driver into the bed when he notices the passenger, a young woman, is still breathing. He pulls off her riding goggles and takes note of her beauty. He carries her into the hotel in the morning light while Ida sings loudly to... You're an original song by Craig Nance written for this film. Vincent tells Ida to open Granny's room, and Ida is clearly pissed off about it already. 
He lays the girl, Terry, across Granny's bed and tells Ida they need to keep this girl safe. Ida takes a listen to her breathing and insists Terry will live. All right, well, I'll fix your little flower for you, but first you gotta go out and pick me some golden seal comb fray valerian and plantain. I don't know what that means. Sounds like Harry Potter ingredients. <laughs> Vincent seems to know what she means, and he leaves in the truck. Back in the motel, we see a couple with twin girls checking out. They have noisemaker toy guns and mylar balloons and chase each other out of the office. The parents stay behind to buy a sampler box of Farmer Vincent's Meats for a mere $2.95. I mean, I get that you might have cheap raw materials, but it still seems very, very inexpensive for, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, it's a part of the appeal. Of jerky. Must be super low overhead. The girls sneak into the smokehouse, where the room is littered with pig halves and heads and ribs. They sneak up on a door when three pig corpses on hooks swing into the room, terrifying the children. As they run out the door, Ida pops up to shout at them, wearing a pig's head over her own head. I'm a little disturbed by the sanitation quality of this, I don't know what it is, butchering area. Kill because shed. Because it's, it's not a refrigerated area, and not all these pieces of meat are smoked yet, and it's just all hanging out there in the open for days on end. Well, yeah, you, ants could get in here real easy yeah, if they I just mean, push that door ants, open. This is how you can ants. I mean, there is a process of aging meat where you literally are just letting it rot. But it's usually in an airtight yeah, chamber. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, this is not that. And I'm like, I get, I get that he's probably not manufacturing things the way he ought to but i feel like you can't produce a good product if you're not taking care of these oh things. sure you can well it seems that he obviously which we'll get to is that he gets regular inspections yeah of his of his facilities right. i don't understand why this is acceptable by the inspector well he doesn't even <laughs> go in this building no that's the other problem well, he does this is the main building like that's by his house uh, but, I, I, but, but I, the inspector doesn't go in here well this he, inspector but i'm assuming that he right. gets inspected regularly because he knows this guy so i'm assuming that he gets inspected rather regularly yeah one would hope Outside, they scramble into the car screaming while Vincent slaps a bumper sticker on their parents' car. On the front on the of the front. car? Yeah. yeah, for everyone to see as you drive up to them. I guess you could only <laughs> notice it if you're parked. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the same as like any bumper sticker with too small a font. I don't know anybody who thanks somebody for putting a bumper sticker on their car. I don't even know if they knew he was doing it. Like They were distracted by the girls when he slapped it on there. It's a very weird placement and choice to do. I, I I understand why Rudy put it on the back of the car as he was selling them and used cars earlier this yeah. year. Yeah. But then the bumpers would fall off, so waste of a sticker. Well, no, then, then the first person saw it, and then the person who comes and picks up the bumper also gets to see it. That's true. <laughs> Vincent offers to help and leans into the window to scream at them again, and for some reason this works. As the family pulls away, Vincent sanitizes his hands with a spray. At least that's what I think he's doing. He like sprays a rag yeah. and then washes his hands. It with happens it. frequently in yes. the film. Yeah, I, I, I think am, that's what they're doing. Yeah, I guess they're sanitizing. It's some kind of like spray-on sanitizing. Yeah, or disinfection. I don't know. But uh, did he do something in this scene that would warrant it? I guess I think shaking he doesn't, hands he with shakes, him. Yeah, he did it after shaking hands. That makes yeah. sense. Later, Vincent tows the motorcyclist's body to a secret garden hidden behind a fence overrun with ivy. He closes the gate suspiciously behind himself. A police cruiser skids into the motel parking lot, and we pan up from Officer Bruce's feet to his mirrored sunglasses. He rings the bell inside and is quickly tackled by Ida, armed with a butcher knife. She shoves Bruce face down on the bed and holds him there until Vincent makes her let him go. 
Terry enters, conscious at last. She asks to see Bo, and Vincent explains, Bo is dead as of this morning, and he's buried already, even. <laughs> yeah, th- this was like... <laughs> A flame's end moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that if they were so far out in the country where there is no morgue or facilities, you can't just leave a rotting body yeah. out in the open. He's a meatpacking place. He should have a fridge big enough to hold a body. But he doesn't because he only smokes. It's 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 <laughs> smoked to, 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 to table. Smoke to table. <laughs> Bruce demands an explanation for Bo's premature burial, and Vincent explains that Bo died on impact and he wasn't intact, and that Terry wouldn't have wanted to remember him that way. Terry asks, Who gave you permission to bury him? <laughs> and Bruce says, uh, Ma'am, in this county, under uh, extenuating circumstances, it's okay. Which I assume is because this guy lets it slide whenever this happens. <laughs> I just think it's interesting that it's come up before, and he knows the law. <laughs> yeah. Everybody heads to the cemetery, and Terry mourns the death of her boyfriend. Why the hell didn't you tell me about this? I figured you were busy. (laughs) The sheriff asks Vincent what Terry will do next as though it's up to him, and he suggests that she will rest up a while and then start working at the motel. (laughs) Like, oh, we need some help around here, so she'll just live here with us. I'm not totally sure what his intent was when he kept her. Yeah. Like, it's. I don't even think it becomes clear even towards the end. What's going on exactly? Yeah. Bruce says that if she's too much trouble to look after, he can probably find her a place. Later, uh-huh. eh. Later, Vincent tosses feed to the pigs when Bob pulls up for a surprise inspection of the animals. This is this is our inspector. He's he's ahead of schedule, and Vincent seems fine with it. He gives him free reign to check out the animals while he moves into the the kill shack. <laughs> Vincent gives him his time in the pig pen. Bob notices a separate structure on their property down the road a bit. He turns back to the kill room and is suspicious of sawing noises that he hears coming from inside. He moves to investigate. He tries to take a peek in the window when Vincent pops out blood spattered with a big knife and Bob freaks out and falls into a huge mud puddle. So this inspector is only responsible for checking on the livestock. That's what it seems like. It's not like this is a, like, a you know, food and drug administration type right. guy checking on make sure your meatpacking facility is, you know, up to snuff. Well, it's hard to say because we don't get enough, but he certainly goes beyond his duties by investigating structures that have nothing to do yeah. with anything. And yet not far enough in his duty to check the room where any of the meat is being prepared. Correct. Unless he's literally just a representative of PETA to make sure the live <laughs> animals are okay. He tells Vincent to double check some hooves because he thought he saw some infections before he races off the property. Inside the motel later, Vincent asks Terry how she's doing, and she's very confused and alone. Vincent reminds her, None of us are ever really alone. You do have someone. What do you mean? Well, you have yourself. Think about it. You've been blessed, child. Oh, the ways of the Lord are mysterious. The very fact that you're sitting here with us proves that it was preordained. Yeah. I guess you're right. She completely warms to this idea and thanks them for their kindness before they rush her off to bed. Bob comes back after hours to double-check that superfluous structure and he climbs over the ivy gate to get into the secret garden. 
he finds a rather plain-looking vegetable patch with a collection of small burlap bags draped over something. The bags make a hideous, scratchy, gurgling sound, and he moves to reveal one of the gurgling plants and is surprised to find a human head. It's the head of the motorcyclist, Bo, and he has pretty massive scars across his throat, presumably from having his vocal cords removed. This is the second movie this year where we Remove slice throats cords. for uh, quieting down our, I don't know. Experiments. Experiments? I don't know if it's an experiment here. You're talking about the dogs? Yeah. yeah <laughs> alligator. <from> alligator. <laughs> Suddenly, speakers around Bob and the head start playing angelic music until Bob is conked out with a shovel. Vincent asks, Another spot check, Bob? We cut directly to the illustrated eyes of Ivan, painted across the front of a tour bus van for the band Ivan and the Terribles. The band is practicing in the back with John Ratzenberger on the drums. We cut from here to Vincent setting up bear traps in the road, like very imprecise spike strips. (laughs) I guess you just have to get the relative width of a car. Yeah, Uh, but he does make like minor adjustments at the last second. He's Mm -hmm. like, "Mm, no, no, no. I mean, I think it's really fun for him to experiment with different ways of causing these cars to crash. Yeah. So. He, he expresses a joy in that uh, that experimenting, too. The bandmates pass a joint around the back of the van, and one suggests, Oh, man, this red's too heavy. We better find a place to crash. Before they hit the traps and launch off the side of the road. Vincent approaches the wreck with a tank of gas and a tube and starts pumping gas into the overturned van to knock everybody out. Yeah. Yeah, so first of all, Everyone is alive. <laughs> they all survived the crash. Yeah, even even though none of them were wearing seatbelts and this van clearly tumbled at least once. Yeah. But then when he when he walks starts walking up with this tank, I was like, oh my God, is he going to Anton Chigurh them? That's what she thought. Yes, that's exactly what <laughs> She was like, oh I God, thought. is that one of those things? Is, is she going to put a, like a rail through their brain? Yes. But um, no, he's just gassing them. I, I also think it's, I, I, I don't know if this is part of the comedy uh, of this, is that he obviously runs a hotel, motel, where people stay. Yeah. But he kill he kills them or knocks them off the road before they have a chance to get there. That's true. Nobody ever gets the whole way to the hotel. Like everyone wants to go there, <laughs> but like it's like 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 these guys were just talking about like how they needed a place to crash. Yeah. And this, so they would have gone to this hotel anyway. Yeah. He but, takes a lot of pride in the work that he does for the meat, but he does not care about the management of the hotel. I mean, yeah. maybe it's just more lucrative to sell yeah. your two dollar meats. I guess if if the if the source is free, he picks up Ida on the way to the garden, and he tells her how much he appreciates this whole process of capturing people. But how come they're so important to you? Well, because they give me a chance to be creative. Oh, sort of artistic. Yeah. And that way, the work we're doing here will always be as special as it is important. Oh, I almost forgot. I have a surprise for you. Oh, goody, I love surprises. They drag all the band members into the garden. Ida turns on some glowing lights and the angelic music and moves to unbag the heads. Vincent pulls up in an auger to dig new holes for the latest seedlings. I want to know if you had to look up the name of that machine. No, I know what an auger is. Uh, I'm a farmer. (laughs) No, I I had to look it up. Okay. I googled it. Vincent shows her the surprise of Bob's head added to their crops. She's very excited to see this. They plant the band and bury them up to their necks, and then Ida comments, 
on their new funny-looking critters, but Vincent reminds her, well, You know as well as I do, it takes all kinds of critters to, to make, make Farmer Vincent fritters. <laughs> which was another tagline for the film when it went out in certain markets. So if... If Bob was a surprise, Vincent must be able because I thought Ida was responsible for all the throat surgeries, but I guess Vincent must be able to do them too because otherwise Bob wouldn't be yeah not taken yeah, care of yet. I guess so. so. In a pinch, he can do them. <laughs> they use sanitizer on their hands again before injecting the band's necks with a I'm guessing a local anesthetic before they cut out the vocal cords. I don't know what they're doing, but Some they sort of sedative to knock them out. Yeah. We cut to a picnic between the siblings, Ida, Vince, and Bruce, and their Stockholm Syndrome employee, Terry. They're enjoying some of Farmer Vincent's meat, and Terry agrees that it cannot be topped. She asks why she's never heard of it before, and Vincent launches into a straight commercial for the product. Well, Farmer Vincent's meats are only distributed within a 100-mile radius. That way I can keep the quality high and the, and the cost reasonable. Terry asks how they got started, and Vincent tells them how their family used to smoke everything. Chickens, rabbits, squirrels. If it didn't move fast enough, Granny smoked it. <laughs> well, we had this old dog, see? It? <laughs> he just seamlessly goes into the story about their Granny just <laughs> flat out didn't like a dog, so Vincent murdered it, and then they ate it. One day she asked me to shush it for her. <laughs> I shushed it all right. <laughs> yeah, he sure did. He smoked that old dog just like a hog. <laughs> Terry is disgusted by this anecdote, but not disgusted enough, which is to say <laughs> enough to just leave this night and never see any of these people again. I it, mean, you're, they're in the country. Right. And it, a lot of the people in the country, meat, meat is meat, as they say. Right. But it'd be one thing if the dog died of old age, but that this entire family was complicit in killing a healthy dog because it barked. Well, you don't want to eat an old animal. Yeah. I prefer them. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> tough. I like it tough. <laughs> Terry is obviously disturbed that anyone would knowingly consume a dog, but they recite, Meats, meat, and man's gotta eat! <laughs> Ida asks if Terry wants to know why the meat tastes so good, but before she can finish her answer, Vincent throws a right hook into her gut, knocking the wind out of her. <laughs> Red flag number six or seven for Terry here, that these people are not to be lived among. Vincent insists Ida was about to spoil his recipe of herbs and spices. Bruce takes Terry on a rowboat in a lake? Pond? I don't know. It's very it's a, small. It's a, it's a marsh. They say they call it a marsh later, or oh, at least yeah. the cop does. It it looks like it looks like it's man made. Yeah, that was my guess. Yeah, I don't know if it's like a man made like like a a quarry kind of like uh, a lot of times when they're when they're they're stripping for like materials they'll they'll dig like these big test trenches. Yeah, and if they don't find anything worth worth thing, they usually fill them up with water. So, so that, people, that don't people don't fall, fall in and die. Them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what it kind of reminded me of. Yeah. But it's very round. It's a perfectly circular lake slash pond. Bruce invites her to see a movie at the drive-in tonight, The Monster That Challenged the World, a 1957 film about giant mollusks attacking Is California. Is that a real film? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. That night, Ida and Vincent head out to the garden to feed the heads via funnels and tubes. Vincent. You think in the years to come, people will appreciate us for what we're doing here? You do understand. Well, of course I do, you dummy. Do you think I'm doing all this just for the fun? Somebody's got to take a little responsibility for the planet. Ida, you sweetheart. Which I think means that they're like, they're doing this as environmentalists. Yeah. They're like, yeah. we're going to, it's, hum- there's too many humans and there's not enough meat, so. Yeah. 
I want to talk a little bit about their farming strategy, though, because, like, I guess the idea is to uh, collect people when they're available, when they're mm-hmm. driving by, and you manage to get more, and you can yeah. put them in the ground, and then you're just keeping. You're not trying to like fatten them up like a hog. You're just trying to keep them around long enough to like you know, have some on hand when you need them. Well, I was going to say, I thought that they were maybe leaning them out. Yeah, I think they want to control the diet of the of the animal mm. before they kill it because they don't know what these people have eaten on their way in. But if they can promise, like, grain-fed. <laughs> I guess. Like, I'm just trying to imagine, like, I don't know that I'd be super keen. If I were stuck in a hole with my vocal cords caught, I don't know that I'd be super keen on trying to eat and stay alive. I mean, I would be keen on trying to stay alive at the very least. And if I were starving, if I were only getting, you know, a half a pound of sand every night, I would definitely chow it down. Okay. This weird grain they're getting. But um, part of it, too, I think, is that they say that when you kill an animal, it has to be like a surprise because if it tenses up when you kill it, that Mm -hmm. it affects the taste of the animal. So they want them to be extremely comfortable. Which, if you ask me, this is not the most comfortable setting <laughs> that you could be in, but um, yeah, I I, I question the, the the whole like bathroom aspect of it. Yeah, is I this was thinking just about that. slowly filling this hole up with uh, their own waste? Yeah, or maybe they're not even getting enough to push anything out. Like their body is literally absorbing everything they're eating. Bruce and Terry pull up to a lovers' lane type field, and she asks when the show is going to start. Bruce throws on his lights and scares all the other cars away. A nude couple pop out of the backseat of the car to jump in the front seat and skid away in the middle of Bruce's headlights. Yeah, what was the what was the purpose of that other than just to get some nudity into this film? Well, they had to get from the backseat to the front seat. Are you saying of the whole scene? Well, no. I mean, of why she, she got – okay, they're in the back and they need to get into the front, but they don't just – get out of the car and then get into the yes, front. Yes, they run they around. They run away Chinese from... fire drill. <laughs> yeah, they run oh. away from the car. It's, it's <laughs> nudity. It's required for these kinds of movies. With the cars all scared away, Bruce pulls up to the hilltop and hands Terry some binoculars. Then Bruce calls down to the Moonlight Drive-In offices and asks them to play the audio for the film through his police radio. This is probably the least comfortable way to watch the movie. Why not just go to the drive-in? Yeah. It will be much bigger, and they clearly wouldn't charge you if they're willing to just play the sound through your stereo. The people running the place obviously don't care that you're watching it for free now. The only difference is that you're so far away that you have to hold a half pound of binoculars to your face for the entire movie. So she's using the binoculars, and she's like, but how are you going to watch? And I'm like, that's kind of a dick thing to say, isn't it? Because he hands her the binoculars. You would think they're going to I thought, you know, maybe Mm. we could share. But no, he he pulls out a second pair. But if he didn't know there was a second pair, it's a really jerky thing to do. I I like how he gets the second pair, though, too, because he just pulls down on the visor above the driver's seat. Like, there's no way that would hold a pair of binoculars (laughs) up. Mm -hmm. Like, it can barely hold car keys up. But he's pretending like, oh, these were just tucked away up here the whole time. We cut to a pair of women driving at night. They are played by Playboy Playmates Monique St. Pierre and Roseanne Caton. They are on their way home from a ski weekend, uh, also potentially prostitutes. <laughs> uh, the driver says, 1500 bucks in two days. That's what I call a great weekend. So I guess they are prostitutes. Passenger Debbie is about to confess to contracting an STD from a ski instructor when Susie slams on the brakes to avoid a line of cows in the road. Will you look at those stupid cows? I don't believe this. Something's weird. They look fake. 
The cows are very clearly <laughs> illustrated on wood or cardboard and just propped up in the road. I would have immediately just turned around and left, assuming this road was closed or I was about to get murdered. Instead, Susie makes Debbie get out to move them, and when she expresses reservation, Susie offers her the handgun in case it's a trap. Debbie still won't go, so Susie does it herself. And when she's throwing one of the cows off the side of the road, Debbie yells, let's get out of here from the car, and suddenly Vincent pops up from behind another cow and gasses Susie. Debbie gets over to the driver's seat and just blows past Vincent and her friend in the car. I don't think this is one of his better uh, plans no. to no. get people, because I feel like there's so many opportunities for this one to go wrong. Yeah, I would love to see the alternate universe version of this scene where the girls take their eyes off the road for a minute and just blast through the line of cows and, and smear this Vincent. farmer. It <laughs> <laughs> just well, drag him down the street for a block. Well, what, she need, what he needed to do was actually be hiding in a spot behind the car so when the car has to stop for the cows he can come up from behind them while they're trying while they're facing forward yeah. to try to clear them mm-hmm. then he gets the driver or whoever stays in the car because then you have access to the car yeah and then the other person is stranded i don't know i maybe you I'm, thought too hard about this <laughs> yeah, Richard. I, 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 I just wanted to say i have a much better plan by the way thanks for the the beef jerky you brought over today it's, really <laughs> it's good. delicious back in the binocular car bruce puts his arm over terry and starts fiddling with her shirt when she asks him to stop he keeps leaning towards her and she slaps him. Then then suddenly he just full on jumps on her to rape her in the car here. And she's pounding on him to get off and we hear, Somebody help me! Somebody help me! Please! Bruce thinks, like us, that these words came from Terry, but he quickly realizes that they came through the radio? And the girl from the drive-in confirms that it wasn't her. We see Debbie frantically driving down a road, being rammed by Vincent's pickup, all while reporting the attack on her CB radio that she had in the car. Well, I thought her car kind of looked like a cop car. It so, did in the second section, yeah. Yeah, so I thought maybe it's one of those cars that you get at police auction, so it still had a radio in it. Maybe. It does have like a, a very complicated roof rack mm-hmm. looking thing. Yeah, mal, old Mal Prospect police car. Yeah. <laughs> They're practically giving them away. <laughs> <laughs> cop shocks, cop brakes. She tells Bruce that someone's trying to kill her, screaming, panicked. She's 10 miles outside of Greenville. The truck keeps bashing her car until she just passes out at the wheel, and then he pushes the car into a lake with his truck. Well, she doesn't She doesn't just say that she's 10 miles outside Greenville. She's like, he's like, where are you? She goes, I don't know. I'm on Highway 55, 10 miles south of Greenville. <laughs> I was like, you know exactly where you are. Why did you just say you didn't know? I have know? no idea. Roughly 10 miles outside of Greenville. North, 118 degrees. <laughs> Write down these numbers. <laughs> Just gonna read her out the whole latitude and longitude. Latitude and longitude. Bruce races to her location but slams on his brakes in a pothole. And when he gets to the lake, Terry sees the truck pulling around the corner ahead of them, but the cruiser is stuck in this hole, and Bruce falls into the mud trying to dislodge it. We cut back to the garden where the playmate heads are being planted side by side, Ida and Vincent hear someone honking and realize they forgot to put on the no vacancy sign. When they get back to the motel, they find a couple of customers eager to check in. Why would they care if customers want to check in? They've already had customers in the past. I think the problem is that they're not there. They were busy. And they weren't home and they didn't put the no vacancy sign on so people were still trying to get in. Right. They they just don't want to draw any unneeded attention. So the no vacancy sign goes on so they can go work on the heads on a... unbothered by people right but they clearly get back to the hotel with enough time yeah but the people already seem impatient by the time Mm. they get back there it is unprofessional but when they get back to the motel they find a couple of customers eager to check in 
these customers are playing Wolfman Jack over their car stereo, which is weird because we'll learn that he's a televangelist in this movie, so uh, I don't know why these people in particular would be listening to him. Vincent invites them inside to get checked in, and they seem to think they've arrived at a famous swingers hotel, even though the guy is a local and a huge fan of Farmer Vincent's meats. He says he's been eating them since childhood. When Bruce pulls up with his sirens going, the guy swinger, whose name is actually Guy, asks, Hey, this place is cool, isn't it? Well, we can turn up the heat if you like. Bruce comes in all muddy and takes his hat off to say hello to the lady swinger whose name is Edith. Terry tells Vincent about the woman reporting the attack on the radio and Ida enters to blame it on pranking kids and claims she already saw the cops chasing off the pranksters. What cops? He's the cop. He's the cop. It would have come through on his radio if that happened. But he was listening to a different channel. Oh, so he was just hearing mollusks attack California yeah. while this well, was going and, on. and apparently that is the same channel that this lady was tuned to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I was just thinking what a terrible night that that woman's having. When, when first her friend is killed by some guy, and when she turns on the radio, there's reports of giant mollusks attacking Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's taking any worse. This is terrible. Bruce says he's going to have to report the prank to the FCC. He invites Terry to join him in heading home, but she moves around him to say goodnight. And says what a wonderful time that she had. Yeah. With the almost rape and the first eight minutes of a movie. I'm also not clear at this point if Bruce is in on what is happening. No, he's not, for sure. I know that he's not, but at this point in the movie, I didn't know whether or not he was. And so I was questioning whether or not he was accepting this excuse, uh, you know, or if he was honestly trying to help this woman. And, you know, I, I, I didn't know. Yeah. He tells her to call him whenever she needs some excitement. The swingers step up to make their reservation and they hand Vincent a pamphlet of hot spots that led them here. Vincent starts to explain that there's been some confusion when Ida intervenes. The back of the pamphlet says, Vincent's Motel, Route 27, Greenville, California. These folks go all out. A swinger's paradise. So there's at least two motels owned by Vincent's in Greenville, California. One of them is a swinger's hotel. No, I think that this is this is that hotel. No. No? No, because this hotel's called Motel Hell, and that place is called Vincent's Motel. Oh. I they just, were just pretending to be the famous swingers place. Oh, I kind of assumed, I'm like, this is brilliant. You're bringing in swingers mm-hmm. who are going to be very complicit in you doing things that make them very easy to capture. Yeah. And I'm like, that's really smart. Advertise in this magazine. Yeah. And, and they probably don't want to be known where they are. Yeah, they don't. They, and these people don't end up checking in through their names, so there's no record of them ever having right? stayed here. Yeah, it's clever. They agree to meet in cabin one in 10 minutes. Lady Swinger Edith tells Vincent to bring his daughter, which is fucking weird. (laughs) I could understand if she thought it was a girlfriend with a big age difference, but why would a swinger want to have sex in the same orgy with his own kid? In the room, they're watching the same TV preacher they were listening to in their car. It's Wolfman Jack from the radio. Edith runs around the room, whipping the shit out of everything. Framed pictures are falling off the walls, lamps are exploding. Guy pops out of the bathroom with a bra over a tank top and a transparent plastic skirt over his underwear. Edie, where's my jelly? She whips him around the neck and pulls him to the floor when he finds a tube of his oils in his pockets and he hands it to Edith to apply to him. Oh, me up. <laughs> Let's get greasy. Vince and Ida show up with rope. The swingers are excited to see they're into bondage and they lay down to be tied up willingly. Hey, you do that 
Yeah, pretty good. What is this, dog style? No, ma'am. Hog. Vincent hog ties her on the bed, and Ida pulls out the gas from earlier. Guy guesses that it's nitrous oxide, but by the time they get to Edith with it, she seems to know something's up. That doesn't smell like laughing gas. It reminds me of the Red Letter Media Phantom Menace review. Isn't that a contradiction? If you smell a gas, I guess it's a little too late. Maybe just got a little sniff of it. The next day, Terry is up early to help on the farm however she can. Vincent asks, How would you like it if uh, someday I taught you the ancient art of meat smoking? I'd be honored. He leaves to plant alfalfa on his tractor, and Terry kisses him goodbye before he drives off. Terry moves into the kill shed to familiarize herself with the room. She finds a pair of mylar balloons. She tries to peek through a window into a smaller room when Ida jumps out with a rubber glove to Terry's throat. She warns Terry that Vincent would be furious to find her here, but Terry explains, No, Vincent said he wanted to teach me. And Ida says, Oh, well, that's a horse of a different color. And then inexplicably walks her over to a garbage bin filled with human shreds and like it's just filled to the top with blood and feet there's some tongues and stuff yeah there's all too. kinds of stuff in there <laughs> but it's like you didn't have to walk her right next to this thing if this is the most incriminating thing in the room she tries to distract terry and kicks the bin so that the human foot will sink out of sight into the sludge she points to the skylight and says what a day for tubin tubin they jump off the dock into a small lake with inner tubes, the same lake from before, but they both admit that they cannot swim. <laughs> Ida pops her tube on purpose and pretends to drown, but when Terry gets close, she holds her head under the water to try and kill her until Vincent intervenes to save her. We cut to Terry resting in bed with Vincent and Ida above her. Ida begs her forgiveness that she just had a panic attack when she thought she was drowning, and she is immediately forgiven. She thanks Vincent for saving her life, and she leans up to take his hands. And then when she leans back down, she tries to put his hand on her breast, and he recoils. She pulls him in close for a kiss, and he kisses her forehead, so she just throws her blanket off and starts making out with him topless. Vincent is not comfortable with this. We should be married first. Are you proposing to me? So this is where I get a little confused about <laughs> his original intention for I think, keeping her. I think it was just another person to help out he was literally just thinking like so did he want work. her to be like a daughter because that's what i was thinking at I first think so. and but then this happens and then he rejects her and i'm like oh okay yeah he totally did want her as a daughter and bring yeah. her in the family and then he's like we should be married first and then i'm like oh wait no i don't i don't understand this guy <laughs> well it's like it's a daughter with benefits oh god whoa that's gross Vincent goes to see Wolfman as Reverend Billy at the first Greenville Eurekaistic Church to book him for the wedding. They did shoot a wedding scene for this movie, but it ended up on the cutting room floor, apparently. Ha! The, 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 blood. The room with the, me. The, the room with blood, me. Blood room. <laughs> Walking away from the church, the Reverend catches Bruce reading a Hustler magazine in his cruiser. Bruce says he confiscated it from kids, and Reverend Billy offers to destroy it for him. He tells Bruce that Terry and Vincent are getting married tomorrow. Bruce thinks Vincent must have done something to her because she would never agree to this. The police cruiser skids up to the motel and starts shouting for Terry. But, like, really skids away and skids up to the motel. Like, reckless driving. Yeah. I, I, like, if, like, a few extra minutes is going to make a difference yep. when you just found out about this wedding that's already been in the works and planned for at least a day. Yeah, it's weird. And <laughs> Ida is reading, also reading a Hustler? The same the issue. The same Hustler? Yeah. I would have liked a like a direct cut from the Reverend reading the Hustler after to he confiscates it. it to Ida. Yeah, <laughs> Bruce finds Terry in the bathtub 
and he just busts right into the he just busts right into the bathroom to find her in the bathtub. He he literally knocks like this massive the, wooden door yeah, off the hinges. Yeah, breaks the door down to get into her. Like she's specifically like she's alone in the bathroom taking a bath. She's not like in imminent danger right yeah. now. But he kicks in the door and it shatters a mirror on its way into the room. Uh, he confirms with her that she is marrying Vincent willingly and tries to talk her out of it. He's insane. He is not. Oh, <laughs> didn't he tell you? <laughs> he's got syphilis of the brain. <laughs> That's right. Oh, oh, he's not normal at all. Uh-uh. And he's dumb. Yeah, and his pecker don't work either. <laughs> Boy, are you going to be disappointed when he gets out of those overalls on his wedding night and there's a shriveled up prune. This is just a very weird character that he's uh, <laughs> dipping into here. It also seems out of place because uh, up until this point, he's been very supportive of his brother. Yeah. Vincent shows up in the middle of this rant with a gun trained on Bruce's back. Bruce talks back to him until Vincent fires a few shotgun shells into the walls of his own motel as a warning. Don't forget, I'm the law around here. Oh, no, Vince. Oh, stop. And Bruce's cruiser skids away again. That night, Vincent presents Terry with an engagement ring. And Ida brings them all champagne and party blowers. Keep in mind, Terry is still naked from her bath and has been wrapped in a towel this entire time. (laughs) After their first drinks, Ida pours Terry another and drips something green into it. Terry doesn't even notice that her drink is a totally different color than her first glass, let alone everyone else's drinks. She passes out almost immediately, and Ida and Vincent get to work. On the side of the road, Bruce investigates the scene of the motorcycle crash, There's a big gash in a tree where the bike hit. Then he finds the bike and a popped tire that caused the crash is peppered with shotgun pellets and we realize that Vincent shot out the tire to cause the accident. Ida and Vincent set up bizarre spiraling lights in front of the row of garden heads. The pulsating light hypnotizes them into silence. I had a feeling you boys could get behind this. Now, as you check out the swirling colors, notice how your heads become more and more mellow. Each word I say will take you farther and farther into a radical hypno-high. Heavier, but smoother than any trip you've ever had. You boys know about astral projection? All right, now, by the time I count to ten, we're going to project you beyond Mars. We're going to send you to a place where people are so far out, they have wings. All right, here we go. Ten. Nine. Eight. Vincent wraps all the heads in nooses strung up to the tractor and then Ida pulls it just far enough to snap all their necks when Vincent's countdown gets to zero. I thought for sure all their heads were going to pop off. I thought so too. Uh, But that wouldn't be very useful to them because they need these the product under the ground. Now dead, they use the same tractor to pull the full bodies out of the ground to prepare them for meat packing. Bruce checks the lake and sees a bunch of cars 
barely submerged in the water, like less than a foot deep into the water, and a bong floats out of the tour van that I think is actually coming above the water. That's how lazily yeah. these cars are packed in I'm here. glad they covered it, though, because that was a big question in my head up where until this point in the film. Go? I was like, where is he putting all these cars? There's got to be a lot of cars from this. Yeah, so the, I'm, my, my feeling is that these are just all the cars that are piled up that's why they're not being submerged anymore because they're just because yeah. they're on top of well, other he cars. Does, yeah. that's, he does say that when he comes out of this alarm. Yes. He says there's 200 cars in the marsh. <laughs> Bruce heads back to the motel and Ida and Vincent bring bodies into the kill room. One of the garden bodies is actually breaking loose and digging its way out of the garden. It's Bo, the motorcyclist. Bruce goes to check on Terry and she's still lying in bed with a party hat on, wrapped in a towel, sleeping from being drugged. He warns her that she's in danger, but she doesn't believe him. Ida cuts the clothes off of the bodies and scrubs them in big vats in the kill room. Her stomach keeps growling and Vincent tells her to grab food elsewhere because it's annoying him. Inside, she covers ice cream with whipped cream and fried chicken with ketchup while she overhears Bruce trying to smuggle Terry out of the place. Okay, but it's not just like ketchup. She's literally got it in like a lotion or yeah. soap dispenser that she's yeah. like clicking, squeezing onto this so chicken. Smart. It's so gross. <laughs> Very smart. I need that in my bathroom. <laughs> just a ketchup dispenser like yeah. where the soap goes exactly <laughs> bruce shows her the shotgun pellets that he pulled out of the motorcycle and she's finally starting to believe him terry begins dressing before putting her engagement ring back in the case that vincent presented it to her in as bruce leaves terry's bedroom ida jumps him and knocks him out she points a gun in terry's face and tells her to follow her to the kill room the unburied plant man digs everybody else up and a shambling horde approach the motel and kill shack. When Terry sees Vince in the kill shack, he asks her to look him in the eyes and tell him what she sees, and she spits in his face. Ida smokes a cigarette and whistles on her way back to the motel, where she finds it crawling with garden zombies. She doesn't even seem scared. She's, like, excited to fight them all. <laughs> Come on, my beauties. Eventually, they throw her against a post and start beating her to death on this porch. Back in the kill shack, Vincent is still trying to win Terry over to his lifestyle. He tells her that he isn't cruel about it. He doesn't use chemicals or hormones. I'm not trying to play God. I wouldn't even know how to begin. I'm just helping out. There's too many people in the world. Not enough food. Now, this takes care of both problems at the same time. Vincent admits that not only has everyone in town been eating prepared human meats, but even she herself said it was the best she'd ever tasted. Outside the kill shack, the garden zombies start climbing up onto the room when they can't get inside. Terry tries to escape but finds the door locked from the outside. Vincent gasses Terry and lays her across a conveyor belt in front of a circular saw. And then while he's tying her down, her boyfriend Bo, as a garden zombie, comes crashing through a skylight. They wrestle for a bit, but Vincent basically kills the guy again by just choking him out and dropping him out of, like, a small window. I don't. I wasn't clear where he was putting this body. No, he put him into the furnace where they Is smoke. the furnace? Oh, yeah. okay. Um, but I was really disappointed because I was really looking forward to Bo coming back and saving for his girlfriend them and them to again? go on and having a weird relationship where he's a mute that where gurgles, he just gurgles at her. <laughs> That'd be cute. Bruce wakes up in the motel to a televangelist on a television and heads with a shotgun to the kill shed. He has to shoot the lock off the door to the shed, but when he gets inside, he finds Terry on the conveyor belt and Vincent with a full running chainsaw. 
Vincent is wearing a pig's head over his head, and it makes for some really awesome footage here. It does. It's a cool, like, looking scene, but it seems really inefficient for wanting to kill somebody. Yeah, pretty impractical. You definitely can't see anything out of this. Plus, it's a very, very tight room. Yes. Bruce also picks up a chainsaw, and the duel begins. They chop at each other and clip each other with hits. Bruce dodges several of Vincent's attacks, probably because Vincent is completely blind in his head. A wild swing cuts a slab of pork in half. Other slicing utensils seem to spring to life, including the conveyor belt pushing Terry towards the saw. Vincent gets a solid swipe at Bruce's arm, but they keep going. Maybe she doesn't realize it, but Terry is barely attached to the board that she's on, and she could very easily untie herself, but she keeps just asking for Bruce's help. Bruce cuts a big gash in the pig head and then buries it in a post, and then Vincent falls on it and slices open his own gut. Bruce rides a hook back to the slicer that Terry is approaching, like it's a zip line, and turns it off before getting her untied. He runs back to Vincent and turns off the chainsaw in his gut. Vincent tells Bruce that he can have the motel and the garden, not knowing at the moment that the garden is fairly useless because everybody escaped. I don't think he'd want to carry on this tradition anyways. Probably not. He makes Bruce promise to care for his animals, though. So, Bruce better do it. Before dying, Vincent admits that his whole life has been a lie, and he's the biggest hypocrite of them all. What do you mean? I... I meet. I... I... Used preservatives. He dies, and Bruce and Terry stare at each other for a moment until they hear a scream from the secret garden, where they go and find only one burlap sack. When Bruce pulls it off, Ida's legs are sticking straight up out of the ground and shaking wildly. Bruce tells Terry that he always hated this place ever since he ran away as a child before he could learn their family business. Terry suggests burning it down. It's an evil motel. Just then, the motel sign explodes in a fireball. And the O stays out this time. And that's the end of our film. This was directed by Kevin Connor. He directed The Land That Time Forgot and The People That Time Forgot. He has mostly TV movies after this one, including one that we are two-thirds of the way through right now, Goliath Awaits. Starring Eddie Albert, John Carradine, Robert Forster, Frank Gorshin, Mark Harmon, Christopher Lee, Gene Marsh, and John Ratzenberger from this film. Probably not a coincidence. One of our writers was Robert Jaffe. Before this, he wrote Demon Seed, and later he wrote Night Flyers, which is a sci-fi story based on a George R.R. Martin novel that was recently redone as a Netflix series, which Robert Jaffe produced. I just watched the trailer. It looks pretty cool, but I've never actually seen this show. He also played a motorcycle officer in Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. His brother Stephen Charles Jaffe has mostly producing credits, including Time After Time, Those Lips, Those Eyes, Near Dark, The Fly 2, Ghost, and Star Trek Four. One of the writers in charge of cleaning up the script was Tim Tucrello. He has mostly sound editing credits on stuff like Kazam, LA Confidential, 8mm, Grandma's Boy, The Pitch Perfect Trilogy, Venom, and Hulu's Palm Springs movie, which we just watched. It was pretty funny. Our DP here was Thomas Del Ruth. This was his first feature as DP. He would go on to lens Death Wish 2, The Breakfast Club, Stand By Me, Look Who's Talking 1 and 2, The X-Files Pilot, and about two-thirds of The West Wing. Producer Herb Jaffe was the father of screenwriters Robert and Stephen Charles Jaffe. 
He also produced Demon Seed from his son's script, and he produced Time After Time, Those Lips, Those Eyes, Fright Night, Made to Order, Night Flyers, Remote Control, and Fright Night Part 2. Rory Calhoun played Vincent Smith. Always standing around. Yes. <laughs> he led a very interesting life. He was born Frank McCown, and at 13 he was jailed for stealing a gun and then broke out of jail. At 17, he ran away from an abusive stepfather and began hot-wiring cars and robbing jewelry stores. Consequently, he was sentenced to three years in prison and paroled just before his 21st birthday. He worked as a logger in the California Redwoods, a hard rock miner in Nevada, a cowboy in Arizona, a fisherman, a trucker, a forest firefighter. He has very few credits under his birth name, but he met Alan Ladd horseback riding, and Ladd was impressed with his physique and referred him to his wife, Sue Carroll, a talent manager, who got him a screen test at Fox, and he was cast in a number of films. We mentioned Alan Ladd's son, Alan Ladd Jr., recently in our review of It's My Turn, because he was heading 20th Century Fox when the film was dropped from their slate and subsequently resurrected by Columbia. So his first credits are in, like, 44 here, and he's he was born in 22. So he was not even that old when he was acting. How did he have that many jobs I know, it's prior crazy. to acting? <laughs> McCown was contracted by David O. Selznick's company, Vanguard. Selznick suggested that he change his name to Rory because Frank was a Leo. Leos are lions, and lions roar. <laughs> it's as simple as that. That's literally why his name's Rory. In 1945, he was resentenced to prison after punching a detective. He played Mr. Herrick in Adventure Island, Eben Salem in How to Marry a Millionaire. He also plays Kit Carson in the first couple Angel movies. He's probably best known to my generation for his resemblance to a dog that can stand on two legs from Simpsons episode Two Dozen and One Greyhounds. <gasps> Smithers, look. He's standing up. I've never seen anything so adorable. You know who it reminds me of? Benji? No. Classy? No, no, no. A person. You know who I mean. Snoop Doggy Dog? Bob Barker? David Brenner? No, no. The person who's always standing and walking. Rory Calhoun? That's it. It is the only reason I know his name. Because I, I, I don't think I've seen any of his movies before this one. And, uh... But I knew that name immediately when yep. you're like, it stars Rory Calhoun. <laughs> like a bunch of Rory Calhouns. <laughs> Paul Link played Bruce Smith. He's Officer Grossman in 116 episodes of Chips. He's George Bowman in Parenthood. He played Stuart Hessler in K-Pax. He was a college classmate of Robert Jaffe's, and the role was written with him in mind. Nancy Parsons played Ida Smith. She was the head nurse in Where the Buffalo Roam earlier this year. We'll see her next as Alice the Teller in Honky Tonk Freeway next year. She's also Janice Van Meter in Steel Magnolias, Mrs. Kruger in Sudden Impact, but she's probably best known for her appearance as Ballbricker in Porky's. Nina Axelrod played Terry. Her father, George Axelrod, was a very accomplished screenwriter responsible for films like The Seven Year Itch, Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Manchurian Candidate. He also wrote and directed Lord Love a Duck. Her older brother, Jonathan, was uncredited for screenwriting the 76 A Star is Born, with Jay Press on Allen. About a year after this film was released, she married the screenwriter, Robert Jaffe. Huh. Her son is a voice actor, Taliesin Jaffe, who had a few live action credits at the start of his career, including young Christopher Floyd, the son of Haywood Floyd, Roy Scheider's character in 2010, The Year We Make Contact. He also played Ludwig Mueller in The Explorers. Oh. He provides the voice of Blanca in Street Fighter 4, and he does miscellaneous voices in Neon Genesis and The Last of Us Part 2. 
He also provides the voice of Caddishus Clay in 231 episodes of Critical Role. Most of Nina's credits are actually as a casting director, including 1985's Creature and 1987's Made to Order, in which she cast her husband, Robert Jaffe, as a character. She also worked on Jaffe's produced Night Flyers. She also worked in the casting department for Remote Control, Fright Night Part 2, The Big Picture, and Critters 3, in which she appears as Betty Briggs, as well as Critters 4, in which she does not appear. Which means she cast Leonardo DiCaprio. So do we get to credit her with, with discovering Leo? I think so. I think that she gets full credit for that. Wolfman Jack played Reverend Billy. He is a celebrated radio DJ who famously appeared in American Graffiti's 1 and 2. It's possible we heard his voice in Times Square a few movies back, but we couldn't corroborate that, and he isn't credited anywhere for it. Dick Curtis played Guy Robert. That's a great name. That's the, the <laughs> swinger dude. Yeah. He also played the TV preacher in the first scene. I'm guessing they decided later in the production that they wanted another TV preacher clip, but they didn't have any more time with Wolfman, so they just asked Dick Curtis, who played the swinger, to play the televangelist for just one more scene, unless it's literally the same guy and he's just a hypocrite. But why introduce two hypocrite preacher characters? <laughs> John Ratzenberger was the drummer. He's from Cheers. He's in every Pixar film, House 2, The Second Story. He played Rebel Force Major Durlin in Empire Strikes Back earlier this year, and he's in the TV movie Goliath Awaits from the same director. Barbara Goodson was voice number one. Not sure who that is. But she does lots of voice acting, including Zero on Dragon Ball Z, Takashi in Akira, she's Kiki's mom in Kiki's Delivery Service, Zirconia on Sailor Moon, Nauta Nandaba in Fooly Cooly, Mother Talzin on The Clone Wars, and she's also the voice of Rita Repulsa on the American dub of The Mighty Morphin yes. Power Rangers. Well, I'm assuming that she's, these are all the American dubs that she's a voice on. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know who she was in this movie. I'm amazed that i had never seen this movie before yeah because how how have i gotten this far in my life not only have i not seen this movie people don't talk about people it. don't talk about it and i was blown away by the concept i was like i i was a little disappointed that i had never even thought about this concept before of the idea of like planting people and harvesting them for meat yeah i, I mean people have done it without the planting aspect and also i guess um it's kind of implied in the in Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the first film that they're selling meat of the people, and then it's very blatantly stated in the second Texas Chainsaw mm -hmm. Massacre that that's yeah. What I mean, I'm, I, it's it's less about the concept of selling human meat and more the concept of actually planting them. That yeah. was that was really special about this movie and and stood out to me as like I've never seen this before. That's a, that's awesome. Yeah, and I think uh, if this had been Harry Dean Stanton, that it would yeah. be a better known movie. Probably, yeah. Um, but, but I but I think he, I think Rory did um, an amazing yeah, job. Yeah, no, he was great and I also think that Parsons like this is the biggest role I've seen from her because most of her characters are just a variation of Ball Bricker which is just an angry fat lady. Like yeah. it's just like it's it's she she's usually very two-dimensional mm -hmm. and this is the most like well-rounded character I've seen her get to play like really like like dig her, dig her teeth into um <laughs> eating the meat of the people. Um yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. I think that uh, the cinematography works well for it. That uh, I, th I think it sells it really well as a as a dark comedy. I, I would have liked them to even push it further because it's, it's a dark comedy because it's not a serious horror film. But I don't think that there were enough jokes in it. I would have I would have pushed the, the comedy aspect more. I, I, I didn't think that there were any jokes in it. 
Oh, well, then you just weren't paying attention. Well, I think that it was it was silly more than funny. Yeah, the whole swinger scene is just is played for laughs. I This movie did absolutely nothing for me. Yeah, well, <laughs> you don't like horror it. stuff. You're not into cannibalism. I would like to see the original draft. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's possible, considering that people say that it involved bestiality, that a person with a pig's head might not have been wearing a mask in this other draft of the film, like a person successfully hybrided with a pig. Oh. Um, but either way, the, the chainsaw fight was decided on late in the production. Like mm-hmm. originally it was just going to be a fight out in the thing, but they were like, wouldn't it be crazy if they both had chainsaws for this whole fight and like re-choreograph the whole scene that way. I it, I feel like it kind of shows that that might've been a last minute addition because I don't think the fight choreography was great in I the agree. chainsaw scene. I, agree. I love the concept of a chainsaw scene, but it needed a lot more uh, action to it. Yes. Then you need to see Mandy. Yes, I do. I do still need to see Mandy. Yep. I haven't seen that one either. But it's supposed to be good. Yeah. But I liked this one. I thought it was uh, I thought it was pretty good. So it's a thumbs up from you. It's a thumbs up. I think it's a thumbs up from me also. It's a down. Yeah. <laughs> it's a movie without a protagonist. The protagonist is the girl, Terry. But she has no agency or she, she doesn't act on anything. She doesn't do anything. She just agrees with what everyone tells her to do. Yeah. The That's... best kind of protagonist. <laughs> People like Spider-Man 2, and he just does that in that whole movie. He does what? Whatever people tell him to do. <laughs> <laughs> like no save What should you do? Like, Be Spider-Man. It's like oh. save Mary Jane and all those things. Like. Yeah. People tell him what to do, and then he does the thing. You know, if I were him, I would stop being Spider-Man, and then we just cut immediately to him throwing the suit away. It's like, okay, dentist. So then he decides to be spider-man does he do that on his own or does someone else tell him that he should start being spider-man again and then he goes and gets the suit back i don't know if someone tells him he should be re-watch it because (laughs) he doesn't go back to being spider-man until people are like man i wish someone would be spider-man again (laughs) where's this going letterboxd richard i'm very curious to see where you (laughs) oh it's super low really i have this at 121 just That's below just below terror train and just b- above he knows you're alone okay wow jess i have it at number 26 <laughs> 26 holy crap i think i was really surprised by this film yeah i don't know what i was expecting going into it but it i enjoyed it and I, I think that the surprise left it really high on my list. I think for me, uh, this this is definitely our first comedy horror movie of the year. Like everything else has been very straightforward horror the whole time. I don't know. I don't see where the comedy comes into. You this don't see at any all. difference between this and Friday the Thirteenth. I don't see anything difference between this and something like Terror Train, or He Knows You're Alone. Really? But the- this is go- this is silly. This is goofy horror. It didn't seem goofy. It just seemed like a horror film. Gurgling heads in the garden didn't seem goofy to you? Little, like, uh, spinning, flashing lights to hypnotize the people. No? No. Illustrated cows in the road didn't seem goofy (laughs) to you? The the whole sex scene. The whole whole swinger scene. Just to- that's totally normal for Richard. <laughs> no, no, it don't. It, it's all. It just. It seems normal in in this universe of horror films. 
I think it like, look, definitely ha- feels ha- more cartoony than we, we Terror ha- Train. We we had we just had on Terror Train with people in costumes making out with costumes and stuff like that. That's just that's no different than uh, to me. I, I don't, don't see the difference. I don't think so. I mean, for me, this was in the vein of like, I mean, we had without warning with the cheesy alien squid fish flying across. That wasn't any bit. That wasn't silly. No, that was the, the t- coolest the, part of that movie. The tone of the movie is is silly and goofy. The tone of those movies were serious the whole way through. Like I I think this is more akin to like a John Waters movie. Yeah, I you agree. know where you're going over the top with the acting and the the colors and the set decorations and the characters and like everything about it is just uh, more amusing than a regular horror film. How did they decide on Motel Hello for the name of this I don't place? Know. <laughs> That's not a good name for a hotel. Anyway, I have it in 75th place, which is right above One Trick Pony and just below Fade to Black, which I was going back and forth on. Sorry, I have to hear what, what uh, Jesse's surrounding ones are. Oh. What, what's her above and below? What um, it-, it is below Raise the Titanic and above Mad Max. And these are, like I said, these are the order in which I'd watch them again. And yeah. I would watch this one again in a heartbeat. Yeah. And I'm not saying that it's the most spectacular film in the world. You know, like there's movies that I think are, are much better made and much better written um, that are below it, like, you know, Brubaker. But it's 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 how often I'd watch it. And I'm yeah. like, I'm not going to watch Brubaker every weekend, but you throw yeah, this one on and I'd, I'd depressing. watch it. <laughs> well, I think that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show, and if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Bad Timing which IMDb describes like so. A psychiatrist, living in Vienna, enters a torrid relationship with a married woman. When she ends up in the hospital after an overdose, an inspector becomes set on discovering the demise of their affair. Discovering the demise of their affair. I don't know what that means. We leave you now with the trailer for Bad Timing. Would you like to confess, Dr. Linden? To what? Ever been married? Nope. You don't believe me, do you? You think I'm lying? You'll never change, Melina. Never. You gotta understand me the way I am. Difficult to lie. In this area. You'd like me to go with you! Minute, you like me to be dead! Oh! Now I want I can't you to remember the time with any precision. But I'm not asking you for the precise time. So could it have been half past twelve, perhaps? Ten, eleven, midnight? No. What area do you work in, Dr. Linden? Surgery? No, I'm a research psychoanalyst. I teach. We are constantly in isolation, watching, spying on everyone and everything around us. What I need is a confession. 
just that I can't stand to think of you with anyone else. Is your girlfriend a bit mad? Mad is an expression I never use. Welcome to the wake! <laughs> James, you can lock me up, but I'll never be yours. Tell me! We're alone here, no witnesses. I say we go back, we get married. What about now? What do you mean now? Here, right now, this minute, this second. Look where we are. Melina, did you miss that I asked you just now to marry me? No! Confess. When I'm with you, I'm with you. I love being with you. Melina, what does that mean, with me, not with me? Confess between us. Tell me what you dare not. Tell you what? About ravishment. I could understand people who live in this sort of disorder, dangerous creatures, to themselves and others. What do they do? They try to drag us into their confusion, their chaos. Don't ever use that word love again, and I promise I won't. Bad timing, a terrifying love story.